This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure that everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Association's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Judge Al Harrell has made a major impact on the Colorado legal landscape as a groundbreaking lawyer and judge in the city and county of Denver. A proud Sam Carey Bar Association member, Judge Harrell has received numerous awards and accolades. He even has an endowed scholarship in his name and has served within many organizations, from the board of the Denver Dumb Friends League to the National Institute of Trial Advocacy, or NIDA, while mentoring many others on the path to service. Judge Harrell sat down with our own Linda Moss and Mallory Revel to share his philosophy on the importance of family connection and his unique journey to becoming an icon of the Denver bench. Listen closely to hear a never-before-told story about a visit to New Jersey. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Our Voices. I'm Mallory Revel, a criminal defense attorney with Foster Graham, Milstein, and Kalisher, and I'm here today with my co-host. Hi, I'm Linda Moss. I'm a family law attorney with Sederosh Smith and Schellenberger, and today we have the honor of sitting with Judge Al Harrell. Judge Harrell, welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So to start off with, I just wanted to hear about all of the names that you are called in your everyday <laughs> life. Well, um, uh, people call me Judge. Um, I mean, even kids that I've been mentoring for 20 years insist upon calling me Judge. They will not call me by my first name. Um, <clears throat> my grandchildren have heard some of these names, and one day in the car they were telling me they said grandpa you have so many different names <laughs> I, your family calls you fred and a lot of your friends call you al people call you judge um your cousins um they call you fred or judge or al your cousins call you judge <laughs> <laughs> i like that listen you know what um I've I've had a couple, I've received a couple of awards and I've taken my uh, family and uh, my grandchildren especially and with my grandchildren it is no big deal I'm just grandpa <laughs> mm -hmm. so I'm grandpa I'm dad I'm honey I'm sweetheart um, let's see there may be some other names but I have all of these wonderful names. You're a little bit of everyone. <laughs> a little bit of everyone. <laughs> we like to start the podcast with difficult questions. So which name is your favorite? Um, geez. Freddie, maybe? It's a good one. It's a good one. As all of you know about our podcast, what we like to do is ask you all about your life. We ask you, who were you, who are you, and who are you going to be? Let's go ahead and start with who were you? Where did you grow up? Um, <clears throat> I grew up in Denver. Um, I was conceived in Colorado. I was born in New Jersey. I came oh, wow. two weeks early. My uh, mother went back to visit my grandmother, and uh, I arrived on the scene two weeks <laughs> early. Out of curiosity, as someone who came from New Jersey, where were you born in New Jersey? I was born in East Orange, New Jersey. All right, not 
too far away. <laughs> and uh, never went back to New Jersey until 1997. That's fair. And I went to a uh, <laughs> <laughs> went to a uh, seminar at Princeton. Oh, okay. Uh, and that was that was fun. And I thought to myself, oh, so this is where I was born. <laughs> yeah, close enough. <laughs> and I thought I was going to die there. Oh, oh, in Princeton? <laughs> really? That okay. sounds like a story. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, yeah, I, you know, it's one of those stories that I never thought I would tell. I was invited to a um, a, a thing called the Medina, uh, no, Medina, Medina Seminar. It's uh, 20 state judges, 20 federal judges, and I was given, uh, extended a, a special invitation uh, by one of my uh, fellow members on the National uh, Board of Trustees of the American Ends of Court. And um, we were going over to the uh, campus from the hotel, a group of judges, we were walking, and the judge, one of the judges in my company, uh, grabbed his chest and fell down and thought he had a heart attack. Well, we called 911 right away, went to the hospital with him, and while we were waiting to find out what was going on, um, I asked a service person of some sort, you know, where were, where, where were the restrooms? So I went into the restroom. I was standing at the urinal. And I looked down and uh, saw blood. Oh, my gosh. And I thought, what? And I blinked my eyes and looked again, and it wasn't a, it wasn't a hallucination. <laughs> it was the real deal. So I talked to one of the doctors uh, who told us the condition of, of the judge we'd brought in, uh, what I discovered, and she says, I can get you an appointment uh, with a specialist tomorrow morning. And so I went in the next morning, and he said, listen, we can operate on you this, this afternoon. And I said, Oh, my listen. God. Oh, my goodness. I said, I have my own urologist. Can I just go? I'm going back to Denver tomorrow. I mean, will I be okay until tomorrow? He said, well, yeah, you'll be okay until tomorrow. So it turned out to be nothing but prostate titus, uh, an enlarged prostate. So, And you, you know. never went back to New Jersey <laughs> after never, that, right? I thought, <laughs> I was born there, and I thought I was going to die there. So that's the, sto- the end. That's the story. Uh, no return. Well, well, you know, some of it was kind of graphic there. I never thought I'd I would tell this uh, to anyone, especially not on camera or in a podcast. That's what our voices does. We break these hard hitting stories that oh, are yeah. untold. Let's backtrack just a little bit and get back into your childhood. So you sure didn't stay in New Jersey. You grew up in Denver. So uh, where in Denver? What was it like growing up in Denver? I grew up uh, in the Whittier neighborhood. My uh, mother, let's see, well, she was married to a man who was uh, not a very good man. I carry his name, but he was not a very good man. And I think after her second child, my younger brother, they divorced. But he was an abuser and turned out to be a stalker as well. In fact, my mother had to, she uh, obtained a job as a uh, uh, au pair in Minneapolis for a family. I think in those days we called them nannies. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, she uh, 
my grandmother uh, had uh, had another friend who was a domestic um, who knew about that that position, and they were trying to get my mother out of town. Mm-hmm. You know, I found all this out as an adult. Sure. Mm-hmm. And um, she would sneak in t- into town for our birthdays and for the holidays, like Christmas or something. So I didn't see my mother much for about two or three years. Wow. So you lived primarily with your... My grandmother. Yeah, my grandmother. I remember, and my grandfather, but I remember him. He had cancer and he died when I was very young as well. Mm-hmm. She also cared for, I think that was, I called her Grandma Betty. She was 109. Oh my gosh, so wow. So if I was... If I was four or five, that would have been in 1947, 109. She obviously was born in slavery. Wow. So my grandmother was the child of slaves. That's incredible. Yeah, it it is incredible. And you know, you don't understand, realize, you know, what's going on in your life until you look back and then you you realize how much history you were a part of Mm -hmm. and a part of history that uh, you, your family was a part of as well. Yeah. That's fascinating. What was she like when you were living with her? The great-grandmother? <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was very old, so I imagine she was... She was very old. Um, I remember vividly that she told my grandmother that she was tired and uh, didn't wake up the next morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my grandmother, she was... Uh, Oh, she was she was fantastic. She was just uh, she was born in 1998. I mean, excuse me, 1898. 1898. I, I my mother uh, said that I bonded with my grandmother because she wasn't around, you know, in those formative years because of her situation, which was unfortunate. Yeah. What was your grandmother like? Beautiful woman. She um, she uh, was a domestic. She was a a bondswoman. She was um, very active in her church. She was a trustee. She was an usher. She sang in the choir. She was a very religious woman. Uh, she would uh, take me everywhere. She would. Uh, people would come over and they would play bridge, uh, pinochle. The family always had Sunday dinners together. She had chickens in the backyard. Oh, wow. There was a little ritual every Saturday, I think. She would go in and get one of those hens and wring their neck and go over to the chopping block, chop off the head. That chicken would take out after me. I don't know how, without a head, they knew it was me in the backyard. But every Saturday, they'd chase me around that backyard. And I would just scream at the top of my voice, Grandma, it's going to get me. With no head. <laughs> With no head. And, you know, and then it would it would stop flopping around, and I would kind of move over. You know, I'm terrified. Yeah. But I would go over, and it would flop around again. <laughs> In a week after week after week, same scenario, you know. That is the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> it was. It was. Oh, my gosh. It was something else. <laughs> but, but every Sunday, we would have that chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Chasing you around the backyard. <laughs> Fresh eggs. Uh, you know, Denver was a different time. You know, this was in the 40s mm-hmm. uh, and 50s. And, you know, just what, recently I think Denver had an ordinance passed about mm-hmm. eight years ago where you could have chickens now again. So what was school like for you growing up? Um, I went to Whittier, 
Mm-hmm. My first, uh, well, kindergarten, and was chased home every day. My uncle, uh, who was in the service, uh, met me halfway one day and said, that's the last time that you're going to run away from somebody who's chasing you. And I'm like, this big kid. <laughs> and uh, my uncle said, well, we're going to see to that. So he taught me how to box. Oh, yeah, he got down on his knees and showed me how to box. I didn't uh, realize that I that I knew so much. I mean, until a kid in the third grade grabbed me and pushed me down, and I got up and decked him. <laughs> 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 there, there's power yeah, here. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> and no one messed with you anymore. <clears throat> well, you what my my uncle must have been part psychologist. I mean, he was. <laughs> He was something else. Mm. But he said that, you know, if you can take on the toughest kid in your class, even if you lose the fight, people will either think that you're crazy or that you're tough, and they won't bother you. A little bit of both. <laughs> and, uh, or either or. Makes you know? sense. <clears throat> yeah. And so uh, that worked all the way until 11th grade, I think. And in the 11th grade... This kid picked up a baseball bat. <laughs> oh, that's not fair! Oh, my goodness, I, I'm I'm afraid to ask why that happened. I pitched too close to his head. I think when I <laughs> I oh. wasn't a very good, I wasn't a very good pitcher. So a little bit like uh, you started it. Uh, <laughs> and it was you know it was one of those you know I I, I didn't know anything about brush back pitches or anything, <laughs> but he took it personally and came out on the mound with a baseball. So tell us about kind of moving into college, law school. How did you choose your career path? We have to loop back to my childhood. Uh, My mom married married a man um, when I was, I think, five. And um, he was a graduate from DU Law School. I found out later he was top of his class. Mm, Nice. Uh, He went to undergraduate uh, school at uh, Colorado College, left after his junior year, junior Phi Beta Kappa. Came up to Denver, went to DU, finished in two years. He was first on the bar exam. Wow. And uh, couldn't get a job. So he continued his part-time job as a janitor at the Glenarm branch of the YMCA. The guy by the name of Sonny Lawson. I think Lawson Park, ballpark, is down on 23rd and Welton, was named after Sonny because he was very active politically in the, in the mm-hmm. black community. He got a job. He he got my father. My and I will call him my father because he was the only father I ever knew. Uh, the man that uh, my mother divorced when I was three. Uh, I've seen him maybe twice since. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, Sonny Lawson got a interview with the city attorney, the city attorney of uh, Denver. When they walked into the office, the city attorney looked at my father's resume and put it in the outbox, <clears throat> turned around, put his feet on the credenza, and says, why should I hire you? When they left, he said, uh, you know, well, we'll we'll call you. And I guess uh, at one point when my father was telling this to Judge Kane, he said, John, has he called you? <laughs> Which meant that he never got that call from the city attorney's office. Mm. He um, ultimately... Um, Probably, although he and Judge Kane were were partners, 
Before that, there was a couple, uh, Hal and Marilyn Meadoff. Marilyn was a graduate of CU, 1951, in engineering, um, went to law school, CU, I think, the top of her class. Hal was Jewish. She was Lutheran. They were married. They had their own practice. My dad practiced with them for a while and then went on his own. So he was my hero. And from age seven on, I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I no longer wanted to be a pilot, no longer wanted to be a, uh, an engineer. And I'm not talking about a, a civil or chemical engineer. I'm talking about a train engineer. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. Also fair. <laughs> oh, I love, I love trains. But, you know, and I had no idea what a lawyer did, but mm-hmm. I wanted to be, you know, like I wanted him. to be a lawyer. So I didn't find out until fourth grade what a lawyer did. He was why I wanted to become a lawyer. And once I found out um, in um, middle school, which is junior high in my day, in high school, watch watch him occasionally Mm -hmm. go downtown, and I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. So that was, you know, that was, uh, I had a straight path. Very cool. Yeah. I'm guessing you were the only teenager watching court. (laughs) I was, but you know, he was, he was, he was famous. He was a celebrity. The the folks from the law school, which was right across the street from the courthouse, they would pack the courtroom and come over and see him. Wow. There were two lawyers that I remember that uh, people would go to see. My father, Irving Andrews, and uh, Danny Hoffman, but the law students right across the street from the courthouse. That's a great setup. How long did he practice for? He practiced for, I think, 43 years, which is hard for me to believe since uh, they tell me now that I've been practicing 50. (laughs) (laughs) How'd that happen? Well, actually, there are only 18 years difference between me and my dad. We both had Thompson Marsh at uh, DU Law School. Hmm. There was a, uh, a, a young man tells this story. He said that when he came to Denver... He went out to the law school and was directed to Thompson Marsh. And he had a question, and the question was, who's the best African-American lawyer in Denver? He wanted to see if he couldn't get a clerkship or something with him. And I had just started practicing with my father. And Thompson Marsh says, I have no idea who the best African or black lawyer is in Denver. And as the young man left... um, Professor Marsh says, I'll tell you who the best lawyer is. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave me my dad's name. So. That's a good answer. Yeah. So how did you decide where to go to law school? Oh, that's another story. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, one day in English class up at the University of Colorado, uh, Professor Charles Nyland, who was not yet then the chair of the English department, but he was he was actually the second, see, I, my first grade, no, my kindergarten teacher was Judge Flanagan's wife, Luella Flanagan. After that, I didn't have another black instructor, teacher, professor until my second year at the University of Colorado, Professor L. Malik. Uh, in economics, and then Charles Nyland in English. And for context, can you say roughly what year that was? This would have been between 1962 and 1966. Okay. Mm. Dr. Nyland asked me if I would, I was 
oh, maybe, I think I was habitually, I was going to say I was late maybe two <laughs> minutes that day, but I think I was habitually <laughs> late to his class. It was an 8 o'clock class. Uh, easy yeah. to be late to. Yeah. I, I understand there are not a lot of 8 o'clock classes anymore. The people I talk to, they go to class at 10 or 2. Uh-huh. Like, the kids really? have gotten soft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. In my day, we had 8 o'clock classes. Uh-huh. <laughs> So he asked me, he said, Mr. Rell, I'd like for you to stay after class for a moment. And I thought, oh, here it comes. <laughs> so very gracious man. He said, listen, I can get you a full ride scholarship at the University of Pennsylvania mm-hmm. Law School if you are interested. But I'd like for you to talk to your daddy. He may have other ideas. <laughs> and I'm standing there listening and I'm like to myself, you know my father? <laughs> <laughs> also, what could be a better idea than a full ride to I law know, school? Right? What, but no, I was I, that went over my head. It was kind of like this man. This man has a relationship with my father, so he knows what I'm doing up on this campus. Darn it! Had <laughs> <laughs> uh, your number. Well, you know, when I when I left Denver to go to Boulder, it's not a very far piece, but. You know, people in Denver, especially in my community, you, they always knew where you were. I mean, <laughs> I remember being several times in places where I had no business being, and <laughs> my father would drive up, and he said, having fun? I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> busted again. But they really did, my mother and dad, they, they kept us under their thumb. So I, I couldn't get out of line. I tried. I tried but I talked to my father about it I had just gotten married and uh, interracial marriage and my father said "Uh, if you go back east they have a little different attitude and idea about interracial marriages Mm. and uh, if I were you I'd rethink that he said do you think that that's what you want to do is practice law back east I said no I want to practice here in Denver he says Mm -hmm. well either go to see your DU and I said well Maybe I'll go to see you, and you know Dory would can probably work, and and she and he said, wait, 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 stop. <laughs> he said, what did you just say? And I repeated that because I'm not going to repeat it on this podcast. And uh, he says, I don't think so. He says, uh, you go to you go to DU. They've got a night program, and uh, you pay for your own law school education. No son of mine is going to have his wife put him through law school. Of course, I didn't say anything. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I as as an older adult, I mean, my thinking changed, but that was a slap in the face. But that was the kind of man that, that he was. I have to loop back for a moment, and then I'll come back. The loop back is Emmett Till was just uh, murdered in uh, Mississippi. And somehow... We found out about that at, in school. And this is grade school. It was in 12th grade. I mean 12th grade, 6th grade. And I came home, and there were people in our front room, community leaders. They were in there talking. And I thought I would just go in and just make this announcement. And uh, I wasn't invited. And uh, I went in, and I said, I hate all white people. <laughs> My father said, What? <laughs> looked over and you know everyone else just kept talking and just you know I mean and they're black and white folks and my father came over and grabbed me by the earlobe and said I want to talk to you for a minute we went into the kitchen sit down sat down he looked at me pointed at me and he says 
we are survivors. We are not victims. We don't think mm-hmm. that way. We don't act that way. We are not that way. That was it. I mean, talk about uh, being judgmental um, on the basis of race, sex. Uh, he wouldn't tolerate any of that. So that was my early introduction mm-hmm. uh, to uh, who and what he was. So, you know, back to where I was a moment ago, where was I? You wanted to put your wife to work. Yeah. Which, is <laughs> now, which now seems very, no, I mean, it's relationships, there's balance, we support one another. We have a different perspective than your dad did on the situation. Put her to work. Yeah, and I, I have sure. a question, like though. Did she work and did she want to work? She did. See? Yeah, but she worked at home because we made a deal. And what was the deal? The deal was this. Would you mind taking care of the kids um, until the youngest one is, is five in, in, in school, and I will pay for my, my law school, and I will, you know, take care of the family? And she said, deal. Mm-hmm. So that was our deal. And, um, I, I, you know, the minute I got out of law school, we were able to buy a house, and uh, we stayed there until we moved to our present home. I mean, we were in the first home for 27 years. We've been in this one 22 years. Wow. Oh, wow. I like that. You know? Yeah. That's, it's that's been like kind stability of cool. in yeah. the house. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So she, uh, she did what she wanted to do, and uh, she had several careers. The most recent one was with the Denver Film Society for 23 years. She was an event planner. Oh, fun. Cool. And then she was, then she was in administration and retired about nine years ago from the Film Society. Very nice. Yeah. So she's done what she wanted to do and uh, left the rest to me. <laughs> See? So. Mutual support and balance. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. For, what, 56 years? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> How did she feel about your lawyer life? It was rough on her yeah. and the kids. None of my kids are, are lawyers or wanted to be. Hmm. It was uh, my first... Uh, uh, see, I was I practiced for 13 years before I was appointed to the bench, and it was it was rough. Things are different today. There wasn't so much emphasis on self care and work life balance mm. and those things, I imagine. Well, not at all. And you know, you know, from the perspective of those of us who were kind of on the outside, and I include women in that, mm-hmm. um, it was tough. It was really tough. So, you know, I didn't see too many people who look like me in, in the profession and uh, when I did assert myself I was <laughs> subject to subtle mm-hmm. brushbacks mm-hmm. like that pitch I threw at that kid that came <laughs> after me with a baseball bat <laughs> I've got some brushbacks and I wish I had a baseball bat in some instances I was going to say no one's coming at you with a baseball bat in oh, these instances. You know what? It would have been a pleasure. I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have minded the uh, the baseball bat. That, that's open, notorious mm-hmm. assault, you know? <laughs> the subtleties, you know, the, the little snide remarks. Um, those can leave scars. The sticks and stones uh, may break your bones, but words will scar you for life. Mm. That is a horribly true modification mm-hmm. of that saying. Yeah, 
I would rather be struck by a stick than have someone vilify me. Good reminder that words matter, perhaps more than anything else. They really do. And we're wordsmiths, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> As lawyers. Yes. And, you know, actually, b- right before I walked in here, I was listening to a CLE about professionalism in the family law community and uh, a also very blunt reminder of how much the words that we use with one another are impactful, not only on our practice, but in our lives. So I think it's a really important reminder for us to have pretty frequently. I agree. I agree 100%. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey to the bench? We know why you wanted to be a lawyer, what type of lawyer you wanted to be. What made you take that journey to the bench? You know, this was not something I wanted to do. I mean, I envisioned myself being a trial lawyer for all of my life. And, um, you know, my dad was, um, did a lot of civil rights work. He was part of the uh, legal defense team from the NAACP Legal and Defense Fund on Brown versus the Board. I have a wonderful picture of him with Thurgood Marshall and Conis, Constance Baker Motley. Oh, that's amazing. Who I met. Um, yeah, I got a chance to meet a lot of people, like Dr. King when he was here, um, because my dad was in the forefront of civil rights, and when, even when I was in college. I met James Farmer, even had him over at my apartment. And, wow. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he was the head of core at the time. Uh, we had World Affairs Week, and we decided to see if we couldn't invite him. Wow. <laughs> I, uh, my dad insisted that I go to the war, the March on Washington in 1963, wow. and I didn't want to. <sighs> and, you know, stepped into history at his insistence. I mean, the man was a visionary. I mean, he just, he gave me so much. Gave mm-hmm. me so much. That's amazing. And, you know, I haven't mentioned my mom a lot, but she was right there. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> you know, he was the mover and the shaker, but she mm. was the glue that kept us all together and kept him straight for as long <laughs> as she could. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So how did you wind up actually getting to the bench if you didn't want to be there? Kicking and screaming, apparently. <laughs> Peter Ney and Jerry Eckelberger and I had had a, a big uh, narcotics case. We had a week-long trial in front of uh, Joe Quinn, who was then in the district court. And uh, we tried it on a legal theory because in those days, uh, juries just hated drugs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we came up with what we thought was a, a viable legal theory, and uh, it didn't fly, but uh, <laughs> we tried that case together. So I'm walking down the hall a couple of years later, and uh, I hear my name called, Al, Al, uh, stop. And I turn around, it's Peter Ney, and he came up to me and he said, have you ever thought about becoming a judge? And I said, well, yeah, when I'm older. (laughs) Uh. He says, well, how old are you now? I was 40. He said, well, they're appointing people to the bench younger than you and and your age. And he said, "Um, I think you'd make a good judge. You ought to think about it. And there's an opening in Denver County. If you apply, if you get out of the commission, I can help you. And uh, so I went home, told my wife. I prayed about it. And... uh, uh, applied and um, felt good about it and didn't get an interview. <laughs> so, you know, I really am a man of faith and I prayed again. And, and the answer was that there was my time and his time. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay. So out of the blue, a judge 
left the bench to go and work for his family at MGM in Hollywood. And who wouldn't do that? Yeah, <laughs> all right. <Cool. laughs> I, I don't even think that he gave notice. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I applied, and I was encouraged to to, to apply again. And uh, uh, this time I uh, made it out, and then uh, I got a call one night. And th- this is a funny story. So I'm downstairs, and I'm, I'm lifting weights. Uh, we had a little gym downstairs. And my wife calls, and she's all I can hear is Pena. And uh, Federico Pena was the uh, mayor at the time, and the mayor appoints county court in Denver. All other judges are appointed by the governor in, in county and district and the Supremes and, and uh, the Court of Appeals. So Alfredo, his brother, and I, we were going back and forth in a divorce case. So I assumed that, and we were working on a, a settlement, <clears throat> and I assumed that this was who it was. So I picked up the phone. Hey, man, how you doing? And he says, hello. <laughs> so I said, Alfredo? He said, uh, no, this is Federico. <laughs> I said, oh, Mr. Mayor. And I said, here it comes. Um, we decided to pick someone, you know, else uh, apply again. And I, I was, you know, and I was prepared for that speech. And he says, you're my next county court judge. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. And I said, well, thank you very much, Mr. Mayor. And I said, honey. <laughs> I ran upstairs. So that's how I, that's how I came to it. I mean, some, someone said, you know, they thought that I had what it would take to be a judge. And um, I, I really took that to heart because that mm-hmm. meant that I really had to I really had to, you know, toe the line, so to speak. Not that I wasn't, but um, I knew that more was going to be required of me. I mean, I think that the law is the greatest profession in the world, especially in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the law is the pillar of society. I mean, without us, guess what happens? I mean, that's my opinion. Now, a lot of people will disagree, <laughs> but that that was... Uh, that's that was my thinking right away. That uh, I know that every we're always being watched. Yeah. And, and people expect more of us as lawyers than they do other people. I mean, the minute that they know that you are going to law school or that you're a lawyer, guess what? So I knew it was going to be even more so as a judge. So that's how I came to it. What was it like being a brand new judge? Scary. <laughs> um, the first day that I had a very detailed, and this was in a, a traffic case, a minor traffic case, but real good lawyers, and it, they were arguing a motion to um, to uh, suppress, and um, and I made my findings, and it was it was something that took all day practically. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean we start well, let's say all afternoon, and I made my findings and. And I looked up, and I said, is there anything else? Uh, no. And I expected argument. <laughs> <laughs> and they just, thank you, Your Honor, and folded up their, their papers and walked out of the room. And I thought, oh, that's right. I, I'm just the one that makes the decision. <laughs> so, the it was, so it was different. And I, had, and, I, and I had to get used to that, being on the other side of the, of the bench. I'm sure. Yeah. But I had good people around me. Um, you know, people who 
helped Bob Hyatt, stands out in my mind, who was on the county court bench and then became a district court judge and then the chief judge. And um, yeah, he was instrumental in terms of, you know, being kind of a judge mentor. Very cool. Can you tell us a little bit briefly about what you're doing now? Uh, Doing a lot of mentoring. Um, I don't have any CU students anymore, just DU. And I just get them. They just I don't know. They come out of the sky. Just <laughs> show up knocking on your door saying, help us. <laughs> well, you know, when, when you're asked to speak to classes and, and do things like that, and I say, you know, I'm accessible, and, you know, trust me, you, you know, you people just don't take advantage of this opportunity. And you should, you know, take advantage of those of us who offer to help you. Because, you know, we view you now as being a part of our of our community. And so when you when you get that piece of paper and you get your bar passage, we don't want the practice of law to be foreign to you. Mm-hmm. We want you to know people and know what's expected of you. And they don't necessarily teach all that stuff to you. They teach you how to practice law. But to really practice law, there's certain little things that, you know, the law schools aren't designed to teach you. You learn from experience. How to be a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. how to really yeah. be a lawyer. Yeah. There's a difference between how to be a good law student and how to be a lawyer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So these young folks have been taking me up on that since I you know, retired from full-time practice on the bench. And I still do senior judging. Unfortunately, I had to turn down an assignment last week and this week because I'm so busy doing other things. Mm. Uh, Angie Arkin, who's also a retired judge and works for JAG, she and I fell into the creating a group called the Symposium on Race that's almost four years old. We thought it might last about six weeks, but, <laughs> but here you it's are. become really popular now, especially, especially with what's going on yeah. in our country. Yeah. So we've had some outstanding programs and some outstanding participants. I do that, and then I'm still active in the ends of court, and you know, we have to put together programs and what have you, so that takes a lot of time and effort. And um, I do a lot in the recovery community. Mm-hmm. That's really important to me and has mm-hmm. been since I've been on the bench. And that's work that, you know, is, is not a part of my legal life, but it is something that I'm totally committed to. Um, and I do a lot of other community stuff as well. I'm very active in my church. I hear that you contribute greatly to the Denver Dumb Friends League. <laughs> so what what do you like better, dogs or cats? Um, we've had both. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when I was, I was on the board for, I think, seven years. Yeah, seven years. That was, that was a oh, nice wow. experience. Yeah, it awesome. was. Um, I enjoyed that, but I also enjoyed being on, uh, in the uh, client protection program, the Supreme Court's mm. client protection program. Uh, where you really get to see, in both instances, you get to see the the fruit of your labor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. You do so many wonderful things. Yeah. Um, Is there anything on the horizon, any new projects, anything next that you're excited about? I'm just excited about life. (laughs) Excellent answer. answer. (laughs) I really am, and and I have no idea what's coming next. I really don't, you know. New things are created every day, and... I I think the sky's the limit, but I'll I'll go where I'm called, and uh, you know, uh, right now I I think the uh, um, 
Family Star is 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 asking me to really consider being on their board, and that's that's kids. So yeah, that appeals yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. So that might be the next uh, the next part of my journey. Perfect. Well, we're thrilled to have been your very first podcast. Yeah. I would not be surprised if there are more, but we are (laughs) lucky that you were were here first. So thank you so much for being with us today. We've enjoyed this so much, and it's been such a pleasure to get to hang out with you this afternoon. Well, it's been a pleasure to meet both of you, and uh, you've been very gracious to me, and I thank you very much for not asking me, you know, a question I couldn't answer. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't hurt me at all. (laughs) Let it be known. We don't hurt people on our podcast. Well, we also learned that you're a boxer, so we're probably not going to mess with you. Just as long as people know I'm not squeaky clean. (laughs) I've got warts just like everyone else, and I make mistakes just like everyone else. Perfect. Well, Judge Charles, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guests or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. This podcast is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Mario Trimble, Nicole Sparaza, Courtney Holm, Emmy Lopez, Charles McGarvey, and Heather Folker. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our co-producers and editors are Courtney Holm and Nicole Sparaza. Communications director is Charles McGarvey. And this podcast is made possible with the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. Mm-hmm.